Today we continue with a, a study of 1 Thessalonians. If you'd like to turn in your Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 or follow along with the printed portion in the worship folder. I'll be reading verses 9 through 12. Hear God's word. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses in God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. As you know, today marks the 77th anniversary of D-Day. Codenamed Operation Overlord, uh, the battle began on June the 6th, 1944, when some 156,000 American British and Canadian forces landed on five beaches along a 50-mile stretch of the heavily fortified coast of France's Normandy region. And the invasion was one of the largest amphibious military assaults in history. We look back and we know the rest of the story, but it's very important to realize that they did not know whether it would end in victory or in defeat. It would be almost a year later, on May the 8th, 1945, before Nazi Germany would unconditionally surrender. And so, as I mentioned, we know the rest of the story. We know how it ended, but they did not. And although we now, in the present time, are engaged in spiritual warfare, we do know how that will end. We know the end of the story. The victory is certain, and although the war is not over, because our warfare is spiritual, and we use the weapons described in Ephesians chapter 6. In this city, this ancient city of Thessalonica, <clears throat> there was spiritual warfare. When Paul and Silas and Timothy arrived there for the first time, in the summer of 50 A.D. And we read in the book of Acts that they went to the synagogue, as was their custom, and Paul, for three consecutive Sabbaths, he declared from the Scriptures that the Messiah had to suffer and die and that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. So over those 21 days, we read again in the book of Acts that many people, Jews and Gentiles alike, came to faith in Christ. So out of that brief time, a church was born. Now it's a year later. Paul has sent Timothy, they are, they are miles away, Paul has sent Timothy back there to see how these young Christians are doing. Timothy has reported back. And one of the, or one of the portions of the report is that false teachers had come along after Paul and Timothy and Silas had left and were accusing Paul of all sorts of false motives in his ministry. So this chapter, beginning last week, <laughs> last week if you were with us, the first eight verses, Paul is addressing these accusations. They had said, well, Paul's motivation is financial greed. And Paul's motivation is personal glory. And he's saying that's not the way it was at all. 
And he's going to continue that now. In fact, he closed verse 8, verses 7 and 8, we saw last week of saying, we, we treated you as a nursing mother treats her baby with that much tenderness and that much compassion because we cared for you. Now in verse 9, he's, he reminds them that while we were with you, we did not want to take anything from you. We did not want to be a financial burden as we were proclaiming the gospel of God to you. We know from various places in the Bible that Paul supported himself as a tent maker. We read that in the book of Acts and also in the book of 1 Corinthians. Every Jewish boy, it's, it was customary then that a Jewish boy would learn a trade, would, would be taught a skill that could provide a living and a marketable skill. So Paul had been trained to be a tent maker, cutting and sewing and the woven cloth of goat's hair into tents and it's speculated that since tents primarily were used by the military, he probably was making tents that he sold to the Roman army. But regardless, we do know that wherever he would go as a missionary, he had that marketable skill that would allow him uh, to support himself while he evangelized. The craftsmen back then would work from morning until sunup till sundown, so ministry activities would probably take place primarily in the evenings or on those days he was not making tents it would have been a great personal sacrifice to him but he did not want he tells them he did not want to burden them these people to whom he was sharing the gospel but we do know that in the process of Supporting himself, it says that he and Silas proclaimed the gospel of God. So they had the double duty of, of working and making a living and also of preaching and teaching and building up this body of believers. But they gladly did it so that they would not be a burden to them. Now, let me explain to you an area of great controversy with, with many Christians, and that is should pastors be paid? And I don't have any vested interest in saying this, but I, I, it amazes me that this continues to spark such arguments w with people. Uh, Paul chose to do this in that situation because it was evangelistic. He said, I, I did not burden you while I proclaimed the gospel to you. It would be like a missionary going out. We would not expect a missionary to ask the people to whom he's trying to reach, hey, could you donate some money and support me while I'm doing this? But we do see from other letters in the New Testament that there was a place where uh, elders who primarily gave themselves to preaching and teaching would receive double honor, and that meant a payment. That meant a form of payment. So what we have now, we can say, well, the pros and cons of it, where a church supports pastors or ministerial staff, I realize our situation here with me as a pastor and other pastors on the staff supported full-time by the church is rare. It's rare in history and it is rare in North America today. Most pastors are bivocational and when I'm with them uh, my hat's off. You know they are they maybe aren't making tents but they may be construction workers or accountants. Uh, they may have a profession that they do to, to support themselves part-time. 
So that ends up being the norm. Now there's trade-offs, and it has to do with the, the circumstances of where you are. But let me tell you an interesting, I found an interesting example from my own background. And that is that you take the idea that you, a person doesn't go into ministry, he or she grows into ministry. After World War II, the parachurch organizations like what was called up until a few years ago, Campus Crusade for Christ International, the Navigators, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, that really goes back further, Young Life, many uh, Youth for Christ, many of these organizations were started right after World War II. Uh, and there's a direct reason with one I'm going to tell you about. But take, for example, Campus Crusade for Christ. Bill and his wife, Bonnette Bright, lived in Oklahoma. And the family business was a candy business called Bright's Fancy Foods. They sold that, moved out to California, were converted in the process. His goal was to make a lot of money in life. That's what he lived for. And under the influence of Henrietta Mears at Hollywood Presbyterian Church, he and Billy Graham and a number of others were influenced with the spreading of the gospel. Bill and Vonette Bright began to minister to college students in the 1950s on the campus of UCLA, and that spread and became an international Christian ministry. Dawson Trotman, by himself, was a man living in San Diego, and he was ministering to sailors at the naval base. Many of the sailors who had been converted and ministered to through what became known as the Navigators were at Pearl Harbor and died at Pearl Harbor. But Dawson Trotman, was, they, they came from a military background. Now, if anyone here is familiar with the Navigators or was involved with the Navigators, it's got a lot of military terminology to it. When I was in college, the Navigators began a ministry at the University of Alabama, where I was. And the director was named Terry Cook, and his wife is Sherry. Terry went on to become the national director of all the collegiate ministries of the Navigators. When Terry and Sherry moved to Tuscaloosa, Alabama, they had the philosophy, you don't go into ministry, you grow into ministry. So they did not have all their support raised and then locate there where these students were, he came and got a job to support him and his wife. And his job was that of a garbage man. He bought an old garbage truck, and the, the, uh, the hydraulic things wouldn't even work on it. And I'm, I'm going to tell you why I know. Uh, and he would contract with these large apartments where they lived, uh, numerous apartments, and would go and shovel out the garbage in the dumpsters, put it in the truck, and then make the run once or twice a week to the, to the city dump. We were in the same church, and I asked Terry, Terry, could we, uh, I'd like to spend some time with you. Could I, I, you have a time we could talk? He said, yeah. How about Tuesday morning at 7 a.m.? Meet me at these apartments. You can do the garbage with me. So Terry and I talked as I was dumpster diving there and had the shovel, getting the garbage out, and that's, that's what he did the first couple of years until the ministry with students grew to the point to where his time was needed to give himself fully to the student ministry. In a sense, that's what Paul was doing. Uh, he, was, he was alleviating any financial burden on the people he was trying to reach. We know at other times he did receive 
compensation when the ministry required full-time effort there with building particular churches, like he stayed in Ephesus three years, the longest he stayed in any one place. So they did this. So what's, what's the point? I can tell you personally, as a, a pastor, when I realized I receive full support from this church and do not need to be out as a butcher, baker, candlestick maker to support that, in one way, it's a great privilege, but it is a massive responsibility. I can tell you to think, I live off the tithes of God's people. You better believe I'm going to think twice before how I spend money. And so that can be, a, that. there's pros and cons to everything, right, folks? But anyway, this is a very generous church and very grateful. But this is not the norm. This is not the norm through history, just, just for you to know that. Now, in verse 10, he's answering the accusations, first, that they were there for financial uh, greediness. And he says, you know, we didn't ask anything from you. And they're also saying that, well, Paul and Silas and Timothy, they weren't really who they claimed to be. In private, they're not the same people they portray in public. And he appeals to them in verse 10. You know how we lived among you. They were witnesses how these missionaries had conducted themselves. And Paul could make these claims because those people, the Thessalonians, and God had seen it. And if they were not true, if these claims were not true, then they were witnesses to that. We know that for any person to serve in church leadership, and we just completed officer nominations here. We have, for those not familiar, we have two officers, elders and deacons. And we go to the New Testament, to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and to Titus, and they list the qualifications. And here's the point. Almost all of the qualifications are character traits. They're not skills. They're character traits, such as, and I won't read all of them, but an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, and on and on. They're character traits. Why? Because ministry primarily is modeling. It's what we see. How does a person handle failure? How does a person repent of his or her sins? How does, how does this spiritual person influencing me, how does he... Uh, how does he treat others around him? How does he talk to his children? How does he talk to his wife and act toward her? All these things. If you have a Sunday school teacher, you'll, you'll notice what, is, what does this person do? How, how, do they, how do they lead? Well, that's what Paul's saying. You saw us. You saw us. And he wasn't saying that as far as being an elder or deacon, but just as a person ministering. You watched us. They lived in the community. Now, it was easier to observe in that day because they had such a close community. It's very difficult today. Uh, we, I, I don't think some of the scandals that come up with, with um, occasionally with Christian leaders or so forth would happen if a society had much closer community and we had to live, in a sense, 24-7 where others can see us and we can't hide uh, away with automobiles and living far away from where people are and so forth. So they lived in community. If anything, we have to be more vigilant when vetting spiritual leaders. Then he says in verses 
11 and 12, he'd already said, we, we cared for you like a nursing mother cares for her baby. Now he said, we dealt with you as a father. Now he said, we did three things as a father. First, we exhorted each one of you. That means that they set before them the clear biblical expectations for a believer. I remember being exhorted by older Christians, stop doing this, you need to reconsider this habit in your life, you should develop this habit in your life. And it was helpful. There's a, a definite place for that. And Paul says, we did that with you. Three weeks, folks. It started with three weeks. It went a little longer till they had to leave. So they didn't wait till they became best buds before he felt like saying, you know, you really ought to live this way and not live that way. Uh, today we say the 11th commandment is you shall be nice. Well, a spiritual leader has to be willing to, uh, to exhort another Christian. Now, I'm not talking about... Um, hammering people or just being harsh, harsh toward others, but out of love, being willing to say there's a right and wrong way to live. You say, well, like what? Uh, here's some examples. In, later in this letter, in chapter 4, he commands them to pursue sexual purity. That was a non-negotiable. He urged them to pursue brotherly love, to live a quiet and useful life. And then in 2 Thessalonians, he will exhort them against living an idle life or being a gossip. So like any father that cares for his children, he will give commands to spiritual children under his care. And he said, we did that with you, but it wasn't because they were trying to be mean or harsh. He said, we cared for you. I mean, I care about my children and my grandchildren, and I care generally about others but not near like I care about my own. And the willingness I would go to protect them or, or help them at my own demise, I think, I hope. And Paul was saying, that's how we were with you. That's how much we cared for you. We, we cared for you enough, we were willing to point out what needed to change. Second, he said, we encouraged you. The word means to come along beside. We, we envision the idea of a, a runner who's out of gas and they're stumbling toward the finish line, and another person comes along and says, come on, you can do it. Come on now, one step at a time. That, that's what encouragement is. And this was very important. He says, we exhorted and encouraged each of you, not just in general. By the way, every Christian is called to encourage his or her brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not just for missionaries and not just for elders, deacons, pastors, and so forth. We're to come along one another with words and actions that will strengthen them. And boy, we still have great opportunity with all that's going on the past year. Uh, was this the first choir anthem since... Was it, Beverly? Do you know? Is anybody here that knows? Where did the musicians go? They disappeared. <laughs> I guess they heard enough at the first service. I, that's what I thought. Yeah, choral introit, and you've had smaller ensembles, and of course the special things we did at, at Easter, but the first anthem. Wasn't that wonderful? I was seeing, and, but I wasn't sure, and so I was afraid to say anything about it, but I've thrown all caution to the wind now. Thank, thank you so much. That was encouraging. That was encouraging. Third, he said, we urged you or charged you. So they exhorted them, they encouraged them, 
They charged them to live lives worthy of God. They did not water down the gospel message. The call to believe is the call to come and die. If anyone wishes to be my disciple, he must take up his cross daily and follow me. We might want to say, well, I think I'll wait a while before I go over that verse with that new Christian. No, that's on the front end. That's on the front end of a gospel invitation. Come and die to follow Christ, to be fishers of men. So they did not water that down. They, they exhorted them, charged them to live worthy of the God who called them to be citizens. We have an example of how Paul did this with Timothy. Paul was in prison when he writes what I'm going to read to you. He's facing his own death. And as an encouragement to Timothy, he writes, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And then to urge Timothy to keep pressing on, he adds, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. He's obviously trying to encourage Timothy with those, those words of a charge. Now, no loving father would neglect the safety of his own children. Let me read you one quick thing that I found very fascinating this past week and very uh, thought-provoking in, in working on this before we come to the Lord's table. If a Christian from the early period of, of the church, say the second or third century, if a Christian from then were to come and see the typical uh, Bible-believing church in America today, they would be surprised at a number of things that would be very different from what they had experienced. One of the most striking differences would be how what I'm going to call the spiritual formation of our members. Spiritual formation. How do we, for lack of a better term, how do we apprentice new believers? How do we take this baby Christian, this person who is brand new in the faith, and help establish this person in a walk with God? This was a dominant theme in the early church. They labored on, on their responsibility toward new Christians. We find writings by Hippo and Tertullian and Augustine, extensive writings on this subject. It was often discussed in church councils. It was a matter of great debate at times. What's required to establish a new Christian as a, as a believer? And they wrestled with it, with it because we know as Christians, we are, as they were, ambassadors for Christ. And we are to reflect him in the culture in which he has placed us. And it's not going to be easier as in the years ahead. It's going to be more difficult. But it will be much easier to be salt and light and light amidst darkness. But do you know how they did it? Their spiritual formation in the early church was a three-year process. It was a three-year process with regular scripture study, doctrinal training, moral instruction, and what we would today would call spiritual counseling. And then it culminated, well, let me put it this way. Let's say you came to me and say, I've, just, I've been hearing what's being taught here. I've, I've talked to Timothy, or I've talked to this person, and I would like to 
come into this church. I want to be part of this. I want to be baptized. And then I would respond back, that's wonderful. Let's talk. Tell me what you've heard. What do you understand? Now, I want you to begin meeting with me and some others, and we're going for three years. We're going to go through the spiritual doctrinal training, um, understanding of the Christian lifestyle, and after three years, then you can be baptized. And then you can make your profession of faith and associate with God's people. Well, is that the correct way to do it? They obviously had reason for that, probably because they had seen what we'd call shallow conversions leading up to it, and they said, let's, we might say, swing the pendulum over here and say, let's do a lot more to establish them. But my point is, my point is not that we need to go back to three years to, for a person to prove they're a convert before they are baptized. We see examples, obviously, other than that, right in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, that were baptized the very day they professed on the day of Pentecost. But we need to be much more attentive about this. It, as the days ahead, much more, may I use the word, intentional. There is informal discipleship, the one anothering passages in the New Testament that just goes on in the church. But then there's the formal of, of teaching a person and instructing a person primarily with a catechism in that form, question and answer, like we repeated earlier from the Heidelberg Catechism. I think the needs are just going to be greater and greater that we are much more intentional about that uh, in the church. Okay, let's, uh, I want to leave you with this thought as we come to the Lord's table. And I want to take those three words that Paul used. Are you, have you been exhorted? Are you seeking to follow Christ as your Lord and as your King? Are you encouraged? If not, look to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. Have you been exhorted to live as a citizen of the kingdom? This is a preface. This is an appetizer before the great wedding feast that we'll be a part of in heaven. That gives us hope. So let's stand now together and sing our hymn of preparation as we prepare to come to the Lord's table.